0: Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Sabah Oni. He's the chief business officer of South San Francisco-based Elector. You can be excused if you've never heard of Elector or Sabah Oni. Neither tries to make a lot of noise but Oni is an up-and-comer, and the company has been on my radar for some time. Elector is a serious drug discovery shop working on novel targets for neurodegenerative diseases, including the biggie, Alzheimer's. The targets were identified with Genome-Wide Association Studies, GWAS, and the team has considerable antibody engineering expertise to go after those targets. Elector has a partner, AbV, that shelled out $205 million up front last year for the right to co develop just two of Elector's 15 drug candidates at the point of proof of concept. Oni, at age 36, worked closely with CEO Arnon Rosenthal to close that mammoth partnership with AmV. And last summer, he and Rosenthal were added again, raising $133 million Series E venture round. The easy thing to do in this IPO go-go year would have been to strike while the iron is hot and go public now, even at the dicey preclinical stage of development. But Elector opted to stay private a while longer so that it could amass a pile of data from early clinical development that may help it stay independent for the long term. In this show, Oni talks about his upbringing in the Mediterranean island nation of Cyprus, and immigrating to the U.S. for a scientific education in genomics. Graduating at the time of the financial crisis, you also get a sense for his resilience and hustle. He cleverly found a way to get a foot in the door of the biotech industry during the lead years. And before we get started, if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timberman Report. You can subscribe to Timberman Report for $149 a year per person. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license, are available at a discount. For details, ask me at luke.timberman at protonmail.com. Lastly, are you planning a conference, a team-building event, or a leadership retreat? I've developed a presentation based on my successful Mount Everest Summit Expedition. I'm sharing the experience over the coming year through a select number of company talks. These Everest Talks feature gorgeous photos from the world's highest mountain, along with lessons on leadership, teamwork, and what it takes to overcome adversity to achieve the big goals. Interested? Ask me about an Everest Talk at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Now join me in Sabah Oni for the long run. So with me today on the show is Sabah Oni. He's the chief business officer at Elector, a South San Francisco-based company focused on drugs for neurodegeneration. Welcome, Sabah. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Luke.
0: So, as you know, listening to this show, I like to get to know the person um, and their their journey to get to where they are before we dive into the the matters of interest in uh, in current biopharmaceuticals. So. Um, so, Bob, where, where are you from originally?
1: Uh, originally from Cyprus, which is a small island in Mediterranean, and um, um, I came to the U.S. for college, and that was about 18 years ago, and I'm still here. Wow, so
0: that's helpful that you mentioned small island in the Mediterranean because I, like many others uh, from America, uh, might have a hard time finding Cyprus on a map. I've heard it's a tourist destination in the Mediterranean. Uh, but so you you um you grew up there for your first uh, eighteen years. Uh, what was your what was your family like? What did your mom and dad do?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Cyprus, and uh, my both of my parents are educators. So uh, my mom was a psychology teacher in um, high school. For a long time, she's retired now. And then my dad is a professor um, at a business school in Cyprus, and he teaches um, um, general management and marketing. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a brother who also has a PhD and who is also a professor in the same school as my dad in business school teaching marketing.
0: So this is a highly educated family. I, I take it this was a point of emphasis growing up?
1: Uh, it was my parents placed a lot of emphasis on education and both of my parents actually got educated outside of Cyprus right so they knew the not only that yeah that we needed to be well educated but that there were opportunities outside of our small beautiful island but small right for us to um, get better better education than what would have been um, available locally.
0: Well how did your interests end up? gravitating toward hard science
1: from the beginning from early ages for me i think i was fortunate to uh, stumble into science where one i had a lot of curiosity and i felt like you know biological sciences was where that curiosity peaked i wanted to learn everything about cells and um, organisms and animal kingdom fascinated me when i was a when i was a little kid and it didn't change really. As I grew up, i gravitated more and more into going more in depth into biology and learning more about how the world around us operates. And um, even at a very early age, I kind of knew this is what I wanted to do in terms of being in biology and doing something in my life that could use that knowledge, you know, to help people. But I just didn't know what that was, um, probably until high school.
0: Was there something about the surrounding environment, like, or a teacher maybe, who, uh, who really helped inspire
1: this interest? Um, it's a good question. I don't know that there was like one specific event, but I could give a lot of credit to my mom for enriching my environment with a lot of, um, you know, books. But on top of that a lot of um, visits to the zoo and and um, um, also giving me a lot of freedom and whatever I wanted to do as long as it was outside and had interaction with um, you know animals and so forth that I was allowed to do it right and um, I guess that's one of the advantages of being in a you know growing up a very safe small environment where you know you got a lot of freedom as long as it's you know close by so um, um, I think that's where it started and then probably around the you know age you know 10-ish I started gravitating towards people that um, I learned about that made inventions that were really interesting right and um, that was probably the first um, um, uh, seeds planted in my head that you can actually invent things right. Like one example, I can remember the earliest memories is learning about how antibiotics were, you know, discovered, right? Just randomly in a lab, but then that changed the course of history, right? And that, you know, if you made a discovery like that, you get your name in an encyclopedia. That's what we had back then, you know, no internet. And, um, you know, people read about you and, you know, it changes people's lives. And that was like the first um, memories I can remember where I said, oh, that sounds really cool, and that's something that I want to do with my life. You know, being doing a discovery or being part of a discovery that can really change how we think about the world.
0: Interesting. yeah. this idea that a scientist can be a hero. Um, we, don't, we don't have too many of those today for kids. I mean, they're out there, but maybe they're just not as visible as maybe they could be. So, you came to the U.S. Um, as a fresh-cheeked undergraduate, 18 years old. You go, I think, to University of Kansas, is that right?
1: Correct, correct. So, I was in Cyprus, and we had this um, Cyprus American Scholarship Program, where about you know, 15, 12, 15 people from Cyprus get scholarships to come to the U.S. for college. And, you know, everyone applies and you have to write essays and, and, you know, be really good at your uh, grades and also go for interviews. And I was really driven to come to the U.S. because at that point, in my mind, you know, I was 16 years old um, as I was applying. You know, if you wanted to do research, especially you wanted to do research in biology. And just to remind you, that was right around the time Dolly was cloned. So genetics was really hot, right? People were like, oh, we can clone animals now. This is going to really make a difference. And so that environment is going on. I'm in a small island in Cyprus, where I know from my parents that there is better education that exists outside. And I was like, look, if I'm gonna get educated anywhere in sciences, I really think I should be in the US and I wanna do research, right? So I had other opportunities, you know, to go to UK or, you know, somewhere in Europe, be closer to the family. But in my mind, I was like, if I can go to US, that would be fantastic, but there was a big, you know, if there because you know we couldn't afford to send me to college, private college in the U.S. and pay whatever it would be the tuition at that point thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. So, only opportunity I had was going through the scholarship program, which you know wor- ended up working out. And then I got a full uh, ride to University of Kansas uh, for an undergrad for a genetics degree.
0: Wow, that's. Uh- that's a long way from Cyprus. It is, <laughs> and
1: as far away from water as you can get.
0: <laughs> yeah. H- how, did, um,
1: how did Kansas be, become the place? Um, I think for me, um, you know, I, I knew nothing about um, the, the state college versus private college in the U.S. And, and the size of colleges, none of that. One thing for me that was really important was that the school would have a good biology slash genetics program and that um, um, it was an environment that I could see myself fitting in for four years and really enjoying it. And one thing that I knew about Kansas was they had a good genetics program and they also had a really good basketball team, which I would, I've been a basketball fan for a long time. So I was like, ah, I can make this work, <laughs> I think. And it was, you know, in terms of, in terms of the... Um, um, you know, the cost of it, it was also more affordable compared to some of the other options that I had. So, it was just a combination of all of those that got me to um, Kansas for undergrad.
0: Okay. So, you go to Kansas. This is also late 90s. So, this would have been around the time the Human Genome Project is exactly wrapping up. Exactly. Um, at really kind of in the headlines, peak excitement. I mean, people talking about the biology century ahead.
1: It, exactly. I mean, this was... This was right in 1999, early 2000s, where, you know, all the biological um, understanding was just exploding with Human Genome Project and all the tools that we were now going to have to, um, you know, slowly change the world.
0: So you must have uh, done pretty well because you end up going to to Duke to get your PhD, carrying on in genetics. Um, What was it that drew you there?
1: Yeah, I mean, going out of, um, well, just being in undergrad, I knew immediately that I was going to do a PhD um, and not take a break in between. Um, And my goal was to say, hey, look, you know, if you want to do anything, at least this is the way that I felt. I think it's changing a little bit. But in my mind, if you want to do anything in sciences, you need to have a PhD, right? If you want to be impactful. And since that's where I need to get to, and you can actually do that without a master's degree, right? You can just start a PhD program. Then I was like, that's what I want to do, right? And um, and at that point, I was a little bit better educated in terms of the U.S. education system and which schools are good. And, and when I looked at um, PhD programs, my number one goal was going into a program that actually did translational research, meaning... I liked basic research, but my goal was actually taking basic research and translating that to bad side, right? And saying, hey, what do we know that can turn into a drug or a diagnostic or a medical device, whatever it could be? I'm not going to differentiate amongst that, but I want to be surrounded by people that are thinking about that, right? So when I was doing my applications, I I was uh, biasing myself towards um, programs that had Either specific translational programs, or had professors that have, were thinking about how do they um, translate, know um, um, yeah, basic research into um, into bedside, and also, again, I said, well, if you know, if everything falls into place, I want to work with a professor that actually spins out companies, right? And when you do that, the You know, this is early 2000s. The funnel was very um, narrow compared to what it is now. Right. So the number of schools really were narrow. And I was very fortunate to get accepted at Duke into Duke and start working with um, Bruce Salinger, who was and is the head of the Duke Translation Research Institute. This is exactly what they do. So that's how Duke came up to be.
0: That's really interesting uh, be, to have that kind of direction at age 22 or so. I mean, most people don't have any idea yet. Um, and especially going into graduate science programs, a lot of people want to get the PhD because they want to do something in science. Uh, and and then they get just really wrapped up in the whole you know, enterprise of it all and publications and um, eventually, you know, this idea that, you know, maybe if they do well, they could get an academic faculty job. Most people do not think about getting the PhD at that stage with an eye toward using it in industry or translational research, as you say.
1: Yeah, for me, I think it goes back to what you mentioned, Luke, about, you know, having heroes, right? And for me, you know, scientific heroes always, in my mind, Right. I really respect people that discover things for the sake of science, but the people that I really wanted to follow were the people that actually you know, discovered the drug. Right. That to me was the epitome of what you could do with a science degree. Right. So that was, the, that, was the, that was the driving force behind the decision to go to Duke and really try to work with Bruce Salinger, which was not a given. Right? You had to do rotations and everything, but that was my idea going in.
0: Okay, so you're studying genetics, genomics, this would have been the mid-2000s. Um, next-gen sequencing is just starting to come about, you know, the price uh, is, and the speed getting way, way better. Um, and you graduated, I think, 2008, is that right? Correct. Okay, so, I mean, clearly that year, this is the, the Great Recession. Yep. It, it's on. Um and uh oh, it might be hard to get a job. You can imagine uh fresh out of school. Uh, a lot of companies are laying off 20-25% of their staff. Um wh- what did you see out there when you looked around like where you might be able to get a foot in the door?
1: No, uh, absolutely and that's a pretty good um explanation of really what happened. It was like it was like biotech industry was going to be done forever. That was the feeling, right? But um you know one thing that happened with uh, working with Bruce is that we were working on a lot of translational projects. And another aspect, which we see similarities to CRISPR now, but back then it was siRNA, was you know the Nobel Prize going to um, fire and mellow on discovery of siRNAs, right? And that becoming a new therapeutic avenue, right? This was while I was doing my PhD, and, you know, in Bruce's lab, we're working on technologies that actually could deliver siRNA systemically to, to cells, right? So local injection was, we knew it was possible. And, you know, thankfully, al got the first um, approval very recently. But, you know, 10 years ago, we're like, look, the next frontier is systemic delivery of sRNA to treat disease. And we can develop a platform technology to do that. So in Bruce's lab, we're working on that. And although the environment was really unfavorable because of the great, you know, recession, right, we were able to um, get corporate VCs to put some initial money into an idea to spin out a company right out of my PhD. So Bruce, um, a few executives that he has worked with before um, and, and, you know, the technology out of Duke got spun out and I followed it into the into this new company right away. So I didn't have to look for a job because we had something on the technology front that we thought we could make work, right? And
0: And this was around RNAi delivery?
1: This was, yeah, delivering sRNA systemically into cancer cells initially, but the idea was could we turn this into a platform that could be used for other diseases as well.
0: Okay, okay. So your path was straight into a startup. And what
1: was the name? Uh, B3Bio. Okay. And that was in the Bay Area, right? No, that was in Research Triangle Park, right around Duke. So we, we, I just stayed oh, okay. there for two more years.
0: So how did you end up coming to the Bay Area?
1: So 2008, um, we spin out the company and um, the um, um, we had corporate VCs that put some money in. Um, there were angel investors that put some money in, and we started working on the technology. What turns out is that SINAs might not be um, great drugs when delivered systemically because of all the downsides that people learned in the last decade. Right, we're learning that pretty quickly. And a year and a half into the into the process, it was pretty obvious that this platform was not going to mature within the time frame that we needed to mature. And again, fundraising was still really hard at that point, right? This is 2009, going into 2010, where the capital markets were still pretty tight. And in my mind, I was like, well, I could go try to get another scientist position at another company and see what happens there. But that's not where my heart is. My heart is developing therapeutics. I learned how hard it is to actually start a company and fundraise. And one of the, I felt that one of the weaknesses that I needed to work on was learning to be better at fundraising, learning to better tell a story. You know, science is great, but you got to be able to tell that story to a wide audience to be able to have the resources to continue to do what you love doing. Right. So at that point, I was like, well, I'm 27. Right. There are many opportunities in front of me, but one of them is I can try to go to business school. Right. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to apply to two business schools. If I get in, I'll go. And if I don't, then I'm going to look for another job opportunity and see if I can stay on track with what my goal is. Um, and then um, I ended up getting into Stanford uh, for business school and um, jumped on the opportunity and moved to West Coast.
0: Now, at that point at the small company, you're sort of in sort of the, the classic postdoc kind of position. Were you still uh, working at the bench? Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: yep, working in the bench. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So you go to Stanford now to MBA school to, um, to learn about the whole other side of, of the biotech business. Yep. What did you learn there?
1: Well, what I learned is that, you know, most people that want to do biotech actually go to business schools on East Coast. Um, So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, and, and that was, um, you know, a good um, learning experience just going in and not being surrounded by biotech people. Whereas, you know, all of my career, I was just surrounded by PhDs, academics, people that were really ingrained in science. And then now I'm in an environment that's completely different, right? Where people are really focused on technology. Um, We're in the middle of Silicon Valley at a university that is known to um, spin out, um, you know, these uh, founders, the entrepreneurs that um, end up finding, you know, the Googles of the world, right? So it was a, it was a really um, interesting. interesting um, environment to step in and allowed me to actually distance myself a little bit from what I knew, right, which was only biotech, and open up and look around into all the other opportunities that were there, including, you know, technology, but also the overlap of technology with biotech and how I could uh, be useful there.
0: Yeah, so it's... Uh... It's a little bit of that classic fish out of water experience. I mean, you're the biology guy in these classes learning about finance <laughs> and with people that kind of see themselves as maybe the starting the next Airbnb or something like that. But you end up going to uh, an, in- you know, you, you stayed focused. You didn't uh, hear the siren song of tech. <laughs> you, you, uh, you got an internship at Genentech, I think, right?
1: I did, yes. What was important about that? That was a dream job, right? So growing up and you know going to college and doing my PhD, Genentech was the company that you worked at. If you know you were top in biotech, at least in my mind, right? So to me, that was one a dream job, and two, I knew intuitively that I was not a you know big pharma um, uh, person for all of my career, right? But I felt like it would be helpful to start learning how. A very important part of biotech industry, which is big biotech, big pharma, actually operates from the inside. So I took that as an opportunity of three months of going into Genentech, you know, fulfilling one of these, you know, dreams of being part of that organization even for a short time, but also learning from them how they see um, the industry, how they see the environment, but also. Um, how they really operate, because you know, if you're in biotech, you're going to be touching you know, genetics or the world, somehow, all over your career. Okay,
0: so you come out of this, and you've got a PhD in genetics from Duke and a Stanford MBA. Looks pretty good. You've got a genentech internship, so um, presumably you know some more people now around the industry, particularly in the Bay Area. It's a good network. Um, then what? Where'd
1: you go? So I look at it's it's good it's a good question because I graduated without a job, Um, and I was one of the very few people to graduate without a job from my class at Stanford. So, uh, because in my mind I was like, "Well, I'm not going to sleep under sleep under a bridge, right? I'll be fine." I really want to find the right thing for myself and my career, right? And that process was a lot of discussions with people that I really respected. Um, and a lot of discussions with um, um, people that have seen not only that their careers are successful, but people that I've seen uh, that have seen other people be successful as well. And one of the feedbacks that I kept on getting was, yeah, you have good experience in early stage biotech and research, right? But you don't have any experience on the quote code commercial side, Right. You have never sold anything, you have never seen anything being sold, right? All these biotechs, all these you know, early stage biotechs, all they do is preclinical and maybe some early stage clinical work. But your experience misses completely a whole other side of the coin where when you have a product, what do you do with that? Right? And that was really intriguing to me because you know there's something new, something different, I still wanted, wanted to be involved in science. But um, I started basically talking to all the VCs within, within Silicon Valley because I knew that I didn't want to leave California once I was here in looking for opportunities that could give me experience in commercialization. right? And uh, within that process, I, um, I ended up um, connecting with Brian Roberts at Venrock, which I really respect as an investor. And he said, yeah, you know, might have something for you. We started a new company in diagnostics, right? And they're going to commercialize in the next few months and you might be useful to them, right? And that was Ariosa. And um, when I asked people um, around me what they thought about diagnostics, everyone in biotech told me not to do diagnostics because they're like, nah, diagnostics is not that exciting an in industry, right? But i um, just talking to Brian and a few people that were involved in Ariosa, I was seeing the effects of the genomic revolution, just jumping into diagnostics. And what Ariosa was working at that point, which is non-invasive prenatal testing, was going to be the first time a diagnostic test actually used genomic technology, right, to help people. It was the first application of genomics into a commercial product. No,
0: I, I remember that first wave of non invasive prenatal testing companies. Verinata was in there, Ariosa, Natera, there might have been one or two C- others. C- I mean yeah. using some of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and uh that was really interesting science that you could detect chromosomal abnormalities in non-invasively in, in a mother's blood, yeah. um, about, you know, a developing fetus. Yeah. So <laughs> some some young people are probably listening to this and you're saying, you, got an inter- you, you were able to meet with Brian Roberts of Venrock, like this guy on the Midas list. How did you go about building this kind of network? Did you just get go from one introduction to the next?
1: Um, that has been my mode of operation, right? And the one of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life is about being surrounded by great mentors and people that you can learn from. So I have been cultivating... Uh, mentors, anyone that would actually be my mentor, no discrimination, I would just cultivate them. So I got introduced to Brian through one of my mentors um, coming out of Stanford because uh, we had a mentorship program at Stanford. I met this uh, person, incredible biotech CEO in Silicon Valley that was very well connected. And I developed a relationship with him the whole two years I was in business school. I met with him once a month. I emailed him, I called him, was very persistent and coming out, you know, he, he developed, I think, a certain level of um, affinity towards my career to say, hey, I want to help this guy be successful. So once I was looking for um, connections, um, I was able to tap into him and few other people like him to introduce me to their connections. But, you know, the key thing there is they're not going to make the intro if they don't believe in you or if they don't believe that that intro can benefit both sides, right? Both Brian Roberts and me, right? And so um, that was probably the most amount of work that went into getting those intros. wasn't just saying, hey, person X, can you introduce me to person Y, right? It was more about saying, hey, um, I think there is a great fit here, and I would love to talk to this person because of these reasons. And one, you know, I think they can help me. But two, I think I could be helpful to them because of you know they have like forty portfolio companies, and I'm sure one of them is looking for someone like me
0: that's interesting that you you put you consciously put in the time and effort on your networking as part of your schooling maybe an extracurricular aspect of it absolutely but I, I like I like how you describe that because yeah I can imagine your your CEO friend. Um, if I were him, I wouldn't just go around introducing people to Brian Roberts willy-nilly, <laughs> because that, ended up, that ends up reflecting poorly on the CEO if, if you're wasting your friend Brian's time. Um, so, I- interesting. So you, you go to Ariosa. Um, this company has some success. It gets acquired eventually by Roche. And now you're, um, you're a free agent again.
1: Um, what, what was happening at that time? True free agent. I quit um, four years to the day. After um, a year after Roche acquisition, four years at Ariosa, and um, I really wanted to take time off because when you're doing a startup, you have the, you know, horse blinders on, right? You're not looking at anything else, but really focused on the business and how do you make it successful, right? And I really believed in our mission. So for four years, I did nothing but really focus on our business, right? And coming out of that, I was like, I have no idea what happened in the last four years, outside of an IPT, and I can't really rush into another job just without understanding what's coming down the pipeline, right? And, you know, another thing was, I'm like, "Ah, it's time for me to go back to therapeutics because I have had this commercial experience, right? Um, I, you know, had up the uh, business development, did, um, you know, triple-digit partnerships with Ariosa, plus I had global sales team reporting to me my last year, right? So that was um, a lot of... um, you know, a good number of, good amount of commercial experience coming back in. I'm like ready to go back to therapeutics. Right. So I took nine months off and within that nine months, I again went back to what worked really well for me during uh, business school of saying, who is doing what? Can I get introductions? I'm going to talk to everyone that moves in biotech and um, everyone that is actually really focused on therapeutics and not only just therapeutics but platform technologies because again going back to 2015 2016 you know you're seeing companies like Juno and kite you know that's immuno-oncology but the one thing that's really exciting about them is their platform technologies if it works it will expand it will become something you know really meaningful and so in my mind I was like that's where I want to spend next you know level of my energy um, as my next step, right, so I took nine months to talk to anyone that would talk to me um again, cultivated the relationships. you know it wasn't as easy to switch from diagnostics to therapeutics because there's still that I think um, mindset shift that needs to happen, but um again, through connections got introduced to Orbimed and they were. I'm at that point, incubating a company that was doing immunotherapy for neurodegeneration. Right. And when I first. No, wait wait yeah. a
0: second. Wait a second. Yeah, you you yeah. mentioned a mindset that needed to shift. What did, did people in therapeutics look at the diagnostic experience and say, well, interesting, but not really relevant to
1: what we do? Um, yes. I think that was the main thing because I was looking for, you know, BD corp dev roles initially because that's what I knew, partnerships. And the first reaction that you get is, well, who do you know at, you know, AbbVie, Merck, Celgene, you know, Roche, you know, the big pharma companies that you'll be doing a deal with. Because, you know, a lot of people that are going for these jobs have a good amount of experience and they could just shoot off an email to, um, you know George Golombeski at Celgene, and know him immediately. You know from you know from their experience, and that there was a mindset that that made a BD person more likely to succeed, right? And coming from diagnostics, uh-huh. they're like, well, you know the diagnostics world, but how is that helpful to me? Like diagnostics is my service provider, not my partner, right? So that was right. that was the that was I think the overall mindset, at least my perception of it.
0: If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Many top pharma companies have purchased groups licenses that provide in-house sharing rights. Some of the best research institutions in the US are signed up as well. MIT, UC Berkeley, USC, UCLA, and the University of Chicago, to name a few. For details on how you can get a group subscription, Ask me at luke.timberman at protonmail.com. Is your company interested in raising its profile? Sponsor the long run podcast. Biotech leaders are listening carefully and get your company name in front of them. Ask me about a sponsorship at luke.timberman at protonmail.com. But you went into Orbimed and they introduced you to this company, um, Ar- Arnon Rosenthal, uh, founder of Elector. What was that uh, first meeting like?
1: Well, at that point, maybe I'll, I'll paint the picture a little bit. So, Elector was about ten people. Uh, it was in a uh, biotech incubator in San Francisco called QB3, and um, they were doing research on something that, not not, I had no background in. I knew nothing about, but also there were very few papers that I could actually read and educate myself on. So I went in and met with Arnon blindly. And when he first explained the role of immune system in neurodegeneration, my first gut instinct was, hmm, I don't know if this is true or if this is going to work, being very honest, right? So to me, I was like, that just seems too out there, right? And um, But I was intri- I was intrigued because, again, going back to what I was thinking about platform technologies, in my mind, I was like, well, yes, this seems really far off, but if there is a hope that this could work, then this could be huge.
0: Okay, now now for those, for those not familiar, what was the conceptual outline of the story that he was telling about the role of the immune system in neurodegeneration?
1: The concept was that um, there are... A lot of parallel pathologies in neurodegeneration, and we all got to learn about them in the last, you know, decade. You know, A-beta, this is a toxic protein that seems to have a role in killing neurons, which leads to neurodegeneration. There is tau, which is another toxic protein that seems to um, come up in, again, especially in Alzheimer's disease that kills neurons. But then there, is, there are also other pathologies like synapses, which are the connections between nerve cells not being functional. In neurodegeneration, you lose about 50% of those connections, and we still don't know why. And then on top of that, there is a lack of nerve growth factors that are happening at the same time. These parallel the pathologies are happening all at the same time. And what Arnon was telling me at that point is, we now know why. It's the immune system. Your immune system is supposed to take care of all these pathological proteins, take care of the synapses, and provide growth factors to your neurons. And your immune system is quieting down as you age. It's actually losing its ability to deal with all these pathologies at the same time. That's why the pathology develops. And if you want to address all of these parallel pathologies at the same time, you actually have to activate the immune system right? That was his theory, right? And, you know, my, my initial reaction was, I was like, I've never heard of that before, right? That immune system actually does all these things in the brain, right? But I met continuously with him for two weeks, right? And, you know, Arnon is an incredible scientist. He's very credible. Um, and you look into what he has accomplished in his career. It's, it's impressive, but also who he surrounded himself with, both in the company and on the investing side just started, you know, forming the story where I was like, wow, this could actually be the next wave of platform technologies. And, and, you know, once I got deeper into the science, I saw the glimmers of scientific data that was becoming more obvious by the day. And then at that point I was like, I Got to do
0: this now. Arnon, for, for those not familiar, he uh, has a long track record at Genentech and then at Renat Neuroscience. Yeah. Um, long history and network of people that know antibody drugs inside out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a very kind of, I mean, the times that I've spoken to him, a very focused, disciplined, no nonsense kind of guy. Correct, <laughs> like he, he show me the facts. Yeah. Um, And uh, so this is still, as you say, very early and speculative, but it started becoming more interesting as you looked at it for a couple weeks. Uh, What was it that made it stand out and and seem more interesting?
1: Um, Human genetics, right? And, you know, I was trained as a geneticist. I did my PhD in genetics and genomics. So I'm a big believer, right, in where human genetics leads you. And this was right around the time, the first papers in human genetics of, you know, Alzheimer's disease first, because it's the largest patient population that people have done studies on, but it has, you know, developed since then. But first studies on real human genetics of um, Alzheimer's disease started coming out in around 2013, right? 2014. We knew about APOE before that, because that's, that's a huge effect size right? But the real, the, the genes that's behind it started becoming more obvious around 2013, 2014. And what Arnon was able to convey to me and others was that this is a treasure trove, right? Where We have now incredible number of targets, right? That are directing us directly to immune systems role in neurodegeneration. And we need to listen to what human genetics is telling us. And I think one piece of information that really flipped it for me was um, one of the targets that we have now, which is TREM2, right? And seeing the dose-dependent effect of TREM2 on neurodegeneration for me was when the light bulb went on, right? And I'm happy to go more into that, but... That was I. I can remember that moment as saying, "Wow, I th- there's a lot of evidence here that this molecule is involved." And once I started unraveling, once that 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 basically unravelled the whole mechanism for me, as we understood back then, which is turns out to be even strongly pointed by human genetics now, years later when we have even more data.
0: So the, that's one example, one target that has progressed over the years, but. At this point, 20, uh, what, 13, 14? Uh, was twenty. this conversation? So it was
1: 2016.
0: Yeah. Okay, okay, 2016. So more recent. Um, but even then, the, the g- genome-wide associated studies, the GWAS, was uh, they're pumping out more and more data. Um, I, I think you guys, one item that I've seen you display on a slide and you've told me in previous interviews, 20 of the top 24 genes known to elevate Alzheimer's risk have something to do with controlling microglia cells. Right. The, the, these are innate immune system cells. This job is to, as you said earlier, uh, kind of clean up some of that cellular debris, the plaque, the amyloid plaques, the tau tangles, but also help uh, keep those synapses intact and, and usher along those nerve growth factors that you need. Um, so, um, wow, 20 of the top 24 genes involved in a certain cell type. Uh, makes you think maybe uh, maybe you can make antibodies against certain, some of these you know downstream protein products.
1: Um, correct, and and our immediate thoughts and you know Arnon and his scientific team gets a lot of credit on starting on this road before others did. Right was to say we can use antibodies to these levers on the on microglial cells to basically um, activate them at the right time, at the right place to empower the immune system to go after these um, parallel pathologies. And as you said, it's just unbelievable how much the science has progressed in the last decade in neurodegeneration, but especially in the last five years with these huge genome-wide association studies with hundreds of thousands of patients, right, and, you know, the most recent one coming out early 2018 from, uh, from the UK where it was 500,000 patients, um, uh, people, 500,000 people, and you had all the phenotype, you had all the uh, background information on these people on top of the um, genetic information that um, allowed us to really start to put this picture together. And again, you know, we say this and people are just... Um, dumbfounded sometimes that 20 of the top 24 risk genes for Alzheimer's are actually related to microglia and they control microglial function.
0: Now your scientific friends might be hearing this and think um, okay, but this is all kind of frontier talk. Um, You know, nobody's got drugs that work on any of these mechanisms. These are all novel targets, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, a whole host of objections I can imagine come up. Like for one, I mean, delivering antibodies into the brain—you got to cross the blood-brain barrier. Sure. The signals are often kind of weak with how these genes are expressed and 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 where. Um, but that's that's the job of the company, right? Correct. You you come on board. This, I guess it was 2016. Yeah, is that 2016.
1: right? 2016.
0: Yeah. And what was your role
1: at the time? I came on as. Um, uh, Herobidi, right? And my role was um, figure out the best next steps in strategy in terms of business development and fundraising for Elector to move forward, right? But in terms of um, the company, right? It was one of those um, very fortunate um, times where I was the only business person at Elector, and my role was so ambiguous. That I could actually turn it into what I thought would be the best outcome for the for elector, and you know I had a I developed a really good relationship with Arnon early on as well, where he gave me a lot of responsibility, and basically we said we know what we have in terms of science. We have been working on it internally for three years, right? And how can we actually turn this into a company that um, can be independent? Um, continue to do innovative science, and continue to push these drugs forward um, on our own, right? And uh, what are the steps that we need to do to get there? And um,
0: and you guys had this shared vision that you want to build an independent company for the long haul. Now, <laughs> I should probably ask Arnon this question, why that was so important to him. Yeah. Um, I think I have some ideas. I, I know some of the Renat story, it got acquired by <laughs> yeah. Pfizer, and a lot of people weren't too happy about the way that that all ha- played out at Pfizer. Um, so, I mean, but this was very important to him, and, and you too, that, um, yeah. that you guys be able to, to carry this through more than just, say, phase one development.
1: Incredibly important. And, you know, if you talk to, you know, you should talk to Arnon separately. But one of the things that when he looks back is that the drugs that he has developed, right? So Arnon has one drug that's approved and two drugs that are gonna be approved this year, right? He, he feels that those drugs would have been approved uh, five years earlier if he, was, if he was still in charge of them, right? So the inefficiency of development once this is put into a giant machine like Pfizer was one thing that really bothered him. And to him, it's more about legacy than anything else. Like, can I develop drugs? to cure diseases, right? So to him, anything that gets in the way of that and slows it down, whatever it might be at a big, you know, large pharma company is inefficient and shouldn't be done, right? And to me, I've seen the process with, you know, with Roche and, and we both felt that having the, um, having a, independent biotech company that the sole mission is to push um, these drugs forward as efficiently as possible with minimum interference from other you know functions would be would would have a better chance of actually getting these drugs approved so that was our shared vision yep
0: when you started i mean the company had already been backed by orbimed and polaris a couple of well known venture funds yep. Um, and you and Arnon are thinking about, okay, how can we finance this thing and get the kind of partnerships in place yep. to ensure long-term independence? Yep. Uh, that, that, that's basically the, the driving concept, Correct. right? Now, so what, uh, what kind of plan did you put together to execute on that? Well, what were you hoping to accomplish there
1: that first year? Absolutely. So one, one thing that, again, goes back to credit to a lot of to Arnon and Tillman, Gross, who's another one of our co-founders and chairman of our board, was that they already put together a really strong syndicate, not just Orbit and Polaris, but we had Google Ventures, but also three strategic investors, Amgen, Abvi, and Merck. In their VC arms, they put money into Elector as well, which was a great foundation for me to step in and to say, "What's the best next step for us?" Right? And I'm gonna fast forward. What I learned within the within the next few months was one, Arnon created an incredible pipeline. We had about um, eleven programs in our pipeline at that point, and he only raised at you know, about $80 million to create all of those programs. And we still had a year and a half of runway, which was crazy to me how he could accomplish that, right? But at that point, we have 11 programs, right? We are valued at where we're valued at that point where it's still an early stage private biotech company, right? And where we wanted to get to was, um, you know, further along. So the, the thought process got to a place where we said, well, we have these assets If you can actually do a value-add partnership, a partnership where it will validate this theory that we have that immune system is involved in neurodegeneration, and then use that to do a fundraise later, we can increase our valuation significantly and actually put ourselves into a position where we have the resources to credibly say, oh, we're staying independent. Right. And basically, that's the plan that we put in place. I joined around September, and by January, um, that's what we started executing on um, immediately with the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in 2017.
0: Okay. So you're thinking about a big partnership. Yep. What, what? And you could probably have gone a lot of different ways. You could have partnered up, uh, you know, geographies yep. or. Um, um, you know, individual programs one by one, or maybe a whole platform-wide thing. Yeah. What? Uh, how did you end up settling on the the strategy you did?
1: Yeah, so I mean, our our goal was, um, you know, to preserve our independence while creating as much value as possible using our uh, pipeline, right? And there are very few companies in neurodegeneration. You know, early stage companies in neurodegeneration, very few companies early stage in neurodegeneration that created 11 programs internally, right? So we knew that we had something really um, differentiated, right? And so at JP Morgan Conference, again, we opened up the partnership discussions and we said we're flexible. Here's our goal we want a partnership that allows us to continue to be an independent company, gives us the resources to continue doing what we do best, which is discover and develop, right? And and rest, we're willing to work with you. And within six weeks of starting that process, we had seven term sheets from who's who of uh, Big Pharma, including, of course, Abvi, which we ended up doing the deal with in the end.
0: I remember when you announced that deal, we spoke, I think it was September or October of 17? Yes, Correct seven competing term sheets. Yeah. And what you actually ended up agreeing to with AbbVie was giving away 50% uh, profit share on just two of those programs. Yeah. Uh, and you got $205 million of upfront cash.
1: Yeah. And we had a commitment of, <laughs> we had a commitment of $20 million into our next fundraise, which was, you know, that was always the plan. Do the partnership, do the fundraise afterwards. So there was also a, you know, starting your fundraise with a $20 million check um, already committed, which was which was great.
0: Now that was, um, I, I can imagine that that was really, a, must have been a high stakes drama kind of negotiation. I mean, this is the sort of situation a lot of BD people live for, right? <laughs> to, to
1: get options like this. It was incredible um, from beginning to the end. I mean, in terms of learnings, I couldn't have asked for a better um, situation to be put in to learn, and um, um, also I think, as you said, it was um, um, there was a lot of activity, um, so there was not a single you know dull moment while we went through this process of you know figuring out what the structure is and then trying to uh, push for what's best for elector while understanding that we had to think about the outcome for the for, for our partner as well, because we wanted to put together a partnership where we never looked at the agreement ever again, right, because it just worked. So there's a lot of moving parts, yeah.
0: Why do you think there was so much intense interest from partners?
1: Um, one, the main thing was that we were bringing something into neurodegeneration, right, that have been missing for the last five to ten years, right? And I have all the respect in the world for a lot of people that are still working on A-beta and, and to some degree Tau um, and a few other uh, well-established um, targets. But how many more failures do we need before we say we need something new, right? And so I think this was the first time right, that these Pharma companies were seeing a credible scientific theory backed by data, right? Human genetics, preclinical, backed by very credible drug developers like Arnon, right? That was completely separated from what everyone has been doing in neurodegeneration for the last decade, right? And I don't want to go too much into that, but there are 26 programs against A-beta in clinical trials. We have seen 20-plus of them fail, right? And we still continue to push forward with this. Tau has now 11 programs going after it. And this was an opportunity for big pharma to say, if you look beyond A-beta and tau, right, what's next?
0: Yeah, pharma at this time was getting a lot of heat for putting all its eggs in A-beta basket. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned from speaking with you guys is that actually pharma is showing more interest in some of these other alternative pathways um, and uh, maybe just not talking about them as much. Absolutely. Um, And and, and so so you guys, I mean, fast forward now, um, you got this huge deal with AbbVie, you got plenty of money, you're hiring people, advancing on in parallel, uh, nominating some lead programs. You mentioned Trim um, 2 I think Siglec3 um, right. is another Correct. one. Um, and uh, But uh, your other program, is it prostagland uh, pro-
1: for frontotemporal dementia? Yeah, progranulin for frontotemporal dementia.
0: Now, through this year, so after you do the Abv deal, uh, you continue uh, with your de- preclinical development work uh, in vivo studies in mice, in rats, in non-human primates. Yep. Uh, this is, you're proceeding in a stepwise, methodical, rigorous fashion yep. to, to do what you need to do to, to take these into the clinic. Yep. Um, you do another fundraising, $133 million in a Series E, I think Correct. it is. Um, 17 uh, syndicate partners. A lot of those VCs that you've mentioned, some corporate VCs, some crossovers. Um, I, I can imagine, you know, some conversations may have been had about whether you want to go public. I can imagine a lot of company, a lot of investors might be interested in such a thing. Um, why? How did you think about that decision to stay private for the time being?
1: Yeah, I think the um, the thought process was us, for us was. Um, you know, it's less about what everyone else is doing, and it's more about when do we think it's the right time for Elector, and when is Elector ready to um, you know take the next step in its evolution, right? And our thought process was, look, we are moving really fast, um, um, you know, forward as a company. We're really focused on as you said, Luke, stepwise fashion of saying, we understand that we're doing something completely new, right? And we got to get this to the clinic to see if it actually works. Because as good as the data is in vivo, right? And as good as the data is in new, you know, non-human primates, those are not people are suffering from alzheimer's disease and our goal is to actually test to see if our drugs actually do work in humans that have been suffering from this disease right so we really focused on that and saying that you know as a as a private company we can continue to um, function without getting you know distracted in the in the short term right and that Last last round of financing that we did was um, important to us because it gives us the runway, three plus year runway, where you know we can continue to really focus on our science and clinical development without having to, um, um, you know, evolve too quickly as a company.
0: Well, and this is part of the challenge with Alzheimer's R and D in general, in that you know, preclinical models don't really tell you um, whether you're going to have a clinical effect. I mean, you can get drug across the blood-brain barrier yeah. and the concentrations, and you can look at side effects and, and get comfortable on those dimensions. But um, until, until you get in the clinic and start looking at, you know, the actual biomarkers and endpoints, and, and the, that stuff is shifting, yeah. um, you just don't know.
1: Um, to some degree, correct. But what we have learned in the last few years is that we can actually develop um, pretty strong biomarkers because all our targets are coming from genetics that could inform us uh, reasonably well, even before humans. right? And I think that's, that was one of the uh, big reasons why so many investors decided to come in and invest at Elector. And again, look, it's not a cheap investment, right? This is now a very different company than we were before, but they decided to come in and be part of our journey because they are seeing these results that are what we believe will dictate, hopefully will show us what's going to happen in humans even before we get there.
0: Well, you're going to find out soon. You've got this Frontal Temporal Dementia program supposed to enter the clinic by end of the 2018. Uh, your TREM 2 program, I think, for Alzheimer's, yep. that's also teed up to go to the clinic by end of 2018. And then SIGLAC 3 is shortly behind that in early 2019. So you, it, by, by this time next year, 2019, you're going to have three programs moving in parallel in the clinic.
1: If not more, yes.
0: How many employees do you have there now?
1: We have uh, 65 as of this week, and our trajectory is to be about um, 90 people by the end of this year.
0: Uh huh. So you are in hiring mode. Absolutely. Um, you've got some money. You've got you know good good groups behind you. I suppose you probably get a bunch of resumes. Uh, <laughs> we do. <you>.
1: Uh, but <laughs> well, we're what? always we're we're always we're always looking for exceptional people. Always.
0: Any particular challenges that jump out at you as the you know the head business development and, uh, guy at, at this point at this stage of your company's evolution? Is it just growing and maintaining that kind of culture that you had that attracted you in the first place?
1: Um, that's that's part of it, right? And um, um, we are trying to be very careful on how to how we build the company. And um, you know, we brought in a um, head of people, like head of people operations, uh, person. Remember about twenty people, most biotech companies wait until they're in hundreds and use outside consultants for that, right, um, whereas we brought in someone that we really um, trusted, not only on the operational side, but also on the culture side really early on, right, and um, again, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a welcome challenge to um, try to attract the people with the right mindset or similar mindset to us, but also... Um, continue to you know push forward as fast as we can Um, and yeah being in South San Francisco um, and being in you know one of the hottest times for biotech there's definitely a lot of competition for talent but I think because of the because of the people who we have here now and the innovative approach that we have which is different differentiated from most others uh, we have been uh, fortunate to get some really exceptional people here. So bringing
0: in a full-time head of people, as you say, that would be one sign, I, a subtle sign from the outside at least, of something that you're doing that reflects that long-term independence value. Uh, what would be another example of something that you do, like maybe the people on the outside don't see, um, that reflects that mindset as opposed to oh, you know, I don't know, kind of going with the flow and trying to strike while the iron is hot and, you know, go public because the valuations are good or more short-term thinking?
1: Yeah, I think the the um, one of the good signals of that is how much independence and responsibility we give to each people that join us, right? And Arnon, you know, Says this over and over again to every candidate that we want to bring in that there is no ceiling on what they can achieve at Elector. And that he sees every single person that comes in as, you know, they could potentially become the CEO at some point at Elector. Right. And that, you can just say that. Right. But how that actually turns into action is you can look into the roles that we have at Elector. We have some roles, we have some people that are incredibly experienced and are doing a great job. Um, and then uh, we have um, other roles where you look at the person that's doing the role and their experience level they're much younger than what you would expect but they're still doing a great job right and so you know people looking in you know into elector you know they'll see a very diverse company that not only mixes you know people you know uh, you know the people with different you um, um, you know, backgrounds from different countries, different languages, um, you know, great, you know, um, gender balance, all that stuff. But on top of that, a mix of young and and experienced people and the there's no distinction in responsibilities and the freedom that these people have in order to be able to make decisions within their roles and beyond.
0: Well, your progression sort of reflects that too. I mean, you came in as a guy without a a classic therapeutic bd background you came in in this senior bd role and um (laughs) you had this big big task in front of you did well been promoted um i mean it really does look like uh, there was no artificial limitation being placed on you like stay here in your corner and do what you're told (laughs) um you you were given an opportunity to
1: to swim on your own, absolutely, and that's Arnan's mode of operation, and we all it all waterfalls down from that. But um, it's been an incredible experience um, for me, and um, um, and hopefully for if you know for the rest of the team as well. And you know that's what another thing that sets Arnon apart from a lot of the other people. He's not only a great drug developer, but he has this belief that. Um, people are as good as in the positions that you place them in. And if you give them more responsibility, the best people will rise to the challenge and do great, right? Um, So he's a big believer in potential.
0: Well, Sabah, it's it's been great to speak with you and learn more about your journey and Elector at this state of its evolution. I look forward to following you and the company for a long time. Thank you very much for joining me today on The Long Run.
1: Thank you, Luke. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for
0: listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, send me an email at luke.timberman at protonmail.com. See you next episode.